welcome to The Progression Puzzle, the podcast that provides you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. I'm your host, Michael Barrington Hibbert, and across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a variety of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from the world of finance, banking, professional services, and beyond to understand how their progression puzzles have pieced together. From words of wisdom to pointers on progression, we'll be equipping you with the skills, practices, and learnings necessary, not only to navigate corporate environments, but to thrive within them and ultimately pursue your professional goals. My guest today is Nana Raphael, a Managing Director in the European M&A Group at Jefferies International. She co-founded and co-chairs Jefferies European Ethnic Minority Employee Resources Group and passionately promotes diversity and inclusion at the firm. Since February 2020, and I'm not sure how Nana finds the time, but she's been a trustee to the Board of Humanity and Inclusion a charity focused on disability and disaster relief services. She's the mother of three beautiful children. Nana has been based in the UK since 2001. She was born in Ghana and also raised in Nigeria and Liberia. Nana is going to talk to us today about both her professional and personal journey. She's going to tell us a little bit more about her role at Jefferies, both from an investment banking standpoint, but also her role as co-chair of the Ethnicity Network, and also her commitment to diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. Nana, a very warm welcome to The Progression Puzzle. It's a pleasure to have you. First of all, Nana, I'm, I'm really keen to understand what your current role is at Jefferies. Can you walk our our audience and our listeners through what's involved on a day-to-day basis? Is there a a standard day? So in my world, there's no such thing as a standard day. I spend my time both originating and executing uh, transactions, whether it's on the buy side or on the sell side. Um, So I try and my my time is split roughly 30%, 70% between origination and execution. Um, so maybe I can talk through a day where I'm fully focused on execution, for example. And there, the focus very much is providing advice to clients all the way through from the start to finish of a transaction. So I spend my time either on a one-to-one basis with a client, giving them tactical advice on how they manage a conversation with a potential buyer or a potential seller if I'm on the buy side, negotiating terms of a transaction, working closely with lawyers to get a deal over the line, coordinating with various advisors, whether it's accountants, lawyers, uh, other due diligence advisors, to ensure that cohesively as an advisory group, we are delivering the right service or the right outcome for the client. And so my day would typically start at about eight o'clock in the morning, and I spend probably about 70 to 80% of my time either on the phone, in a meeting or on calls. So there's a lot of face-to-face or virtual interaction with people discussing how we're managing the deal, if we're in the flow of a live execution or pitching a transaction uh, to a client. So there's a a lot of 
interaction with people. There's a lot of analytical and thinking on your feet. Well, there's also a lot of digesting information. And that's what I tend to spend the second half of my day doing, reading reports, reading uh, documents that are sent to us from various advisors, digesting information in order to make sure that I understand either what a business is doing, how I'm going to position the business to potential buyers. And so it's a combination of interactive skills as well as analytical skills that I use in my day-to-day work. I'm out of breath just listening to you. So, so the day starts at 8 a.m. And, and finishes typically when? So you've got a deal which is you know, due to close. What, what sort of time does a normal day finish? It does depend. Uh, on average, I would say I try to be logged off by about 6 to 7 p.m., but if we're in the throes of a live negotiation, trying to get a deal over the line, it's not unheard of to be working to late hours in the evening, trying to you know, negotiate back and forth between lawyers, between my counterparts or other financial advisors, working on the other side of the table, having offside conversations with a client. So you know, I would say within the process of a transaction, which tends to run from about six to nine months, you do have peaks and troughs of activity. In a peak part of a transaction, you might be working pretty long hours. So starting around 8 or 9 a.m. and finishing probably around 9 or 10 p.m. at night or sometimes even later, depending on what is required. But I would say when the deal is running at a steady pace, i.e. when you're, for instance, on a sell side preparing uh, to launch the deal, you tend to have a more steady pace of work. So the 8 o'clock to 7 p.m. sort of 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. sort of day tends to be the more normal thing to see. Okay, and that, that's really helpful context. And I, I'm really keen to talk about Nana, the mother of three beautiful young people. I'm out of breath just listening to that day. So eight o'clock, and, and again, the, the variable that you do not control is your clients and when a deal is done. So, so Nana, please explain to my, my listeners and, and, and people watching this interview, how do you manage? Because I, I want to give the, the audience some context. So Nana was promoted to managing director at the end of 2021. She gave a great overview of her coverage. She predominantly focuses on European clients. From my understanding and to that of my researchers, she is one of only a handful of black investment bankers in the UK covering European clients. And that in itself, Nana, is a a fantastic recognition for you, hopefully smashing the glass ceiling for for many others to follow you. How do you feel about being one of the only few to be able to achieve this milestone? Honoured, obviously. Um, I've worked very hard to get to where I've gotten to. So it's uh, it's an honour and a privilege for that to be recognised in the way that it has uh, through the promotion and other ways that my career has been brought into the limelight. But I also think in some sense, disappointing, because I think about the work that I'm doing to promote diversity and inclusion. Um, and bear in mind that I've been working in the city uh, for well over 16 years now. And you would hope that in that time, a lot more change would have happened in terms of representation. On the one hand, it's disappointing, but it also gives me the the confidence and the impetus to carry on with the work that we're doing around diversity and inclusion at Jeffries, because it is important work to ensure that the next generation of young people coming into the industry see more representation, that there are more people like me um, across the industry that they can look up to, that they can 
rely on as sponsors, mentors uh, as they come through their career. Because I know that when I first joined the industry, one of the things that I could have benefited from was seeing someone like me up there in the upper echelons um, progressing and, and doing well and talking to them and understanding what they did to get to where they got to. Wow. I want to, to really sort of go back to, to family because, again, I know how important family is to you. And I, I want to understand balance because, again, you have a demanding, full-on job. You've got a wonderful husband who some of our viewers and listeners may see on big screens. He's a fantastic actor, by the way. Um, and you've got three wonderful children. Talk to us about balance, but also how you focused and were able not only to get some fantastic deals across the line, but also last year was such a big year in terms of the promotion. How did you get that balance, Nana? That's what I'm keen to understand. I think the question of balance has been a journey. And if I think about culturally where banking was 16 years ago when I joined, um, you know, as an analyst looking around at senior women around me, you know, hardly any of them had children. But those that did have children, you never heard of them. They came to work and they they did their job and they and they went home. And so the idea of a banker and mother was something that I thought was frankly <laughs> not achievable. But I think as I progressed through the ranks, I got married and made the decision to to have children. I knew that one of the things that I had to do for myself was define my boundaries, was, was define what I thought worked for me. And the first step I took towards that was when I had my daughter and being the first person within investment banking in Europe at Jefferies to put my hand up and say, actually, the only way I can see myself doing this job and managing what's happening at home is to work a couple of days from home. And in those days, working from home was unheard of. Um, and a meeting had to be called to discuss exactly what my home setup would be to facilitate this. But a, a long story short, I was given the opportunity to trial working from home for three months, which led to my boss and the senior leadership within investment banking accepting that that was going to be the way forward. Um, and that they were fully supportive of me working from home because they could see that I was productive. They could see that working from home didn't diminish my output. Uh, and so they allowed that to go on. So I give that example to say I had to define what worked for me and communicate that to the people I was working with. And I think that's really important. And I, when I communicated that, you got to remember that at that time I was only a VP. So, you know, putting my hand up as a VP to say I want to do something that no one else, senior or junior, was doing was pretty bold. But I had to do it because I knew that there was no other way. So I think defining what works for you is important, but also getting the right support. And I think if we think about some of the comments we've heard through the years about how female bankers or or female professionals ought to behave, you know, a lot of talk is said about leaning into the opportunity. But I remember one really good piece of advice I was given uh, when I started having children was the idea of pivoting. So I think the successful model is to pivot. There are times when you've got to pivot to what's happening at home and at times when you've got to pivot to what's happening at work. And with a pivoting model, really, the only way it works is to have the right level of support around you. You mentioned my husband. He's not just a fantastic actor, but he's a fantastic partner as well. He understands the journey that I'm going through and he's supportive of that journey. So we, we balance our careers and our schedules in a way to optimize 
you know, where we're both going from a career perspective. And so the decisions that we make are very much joined as a partnership and that supports each other. So all of those things together helping to get to a position where I was able to be put forward for, for the promotion and get it. And I, and I, and I want to add that every day I have to make that decision about what I pivot onto. It's, it's a daily decision and sometimes it's an hourly decision. You know, there have been various challenges all the way through. And being able to sit there and make those decisions pretty quickly, recognizing that the pivoting needed to happen, one, and then making the decision to pivots was, was critical and getting the timing of that right is important. And I think above all of that, establishing myself early on in my career, showing myself as somebody who was reliable, hardworking, delivered, really was, if you think about that opportunity I was given to work flexibly from home, you know, one of the things my boss said to me was, I'm giving you this opportunity, Nana, because I trust you. I know you will get the job done. So you have to establish yourself. You have to give yourself that brand that people know represents something. And when you, when you build that brand, it's very easy to then build these other things around it, whether it's work-life balance, uh, whether it's creating other, other opportunities for yourself, whether it's redefining your career. However you choose to do that, that base brand that you build is going to be what you, the foundation upon which your career will be built on. Wonderful. And, and this is what's so important about the progression puzzle. And it's about context. I've had other male leaders on and we've spoken about their families. And I think it's really important for people listening to this to understand how people have become successful. It's not a linear line. It's about partnership. It's about flexibility. And that's why I thought it was so important for you to be able to sort of share your experience of having a great partner at home. But also, I think it's really important to give Jeffrey's credit and your line manager credit for being able to give you that support in order to be able to execute as well. Now, I mentioned in the introduction, you were born in Ghana. You spent time living in Nigeria, Liberia. What I'm keen to understand is moving to the UK in 2001 to go to university. Talk to me about your career progression, your experience through university, because who are your role models? Did you, were you, did you grow up with investment bankers? How did you choose this, this path? Great question, Michael. So I think the backdrop of my growing up across various countries in, in West Africa is that my, my parents were, were restless. They couldn't sit still in one place. And so we ended up traveling and, and living in, in the three countries that you, you mentioned. But nevertheless, moving to the UK was, without a doubt, a huge cultural shock. Um, I like to say to people, I didn't know that I was black until I moved to the UK. Um, because that, that is the thing that, you're, you know, I went from just being Nana to being, you know, black Nana, um, moving to the UK. So um, I think that was the first thing. And I think if I think back to university, because when I first got here, I did, I did my A-levels and then I went to the LSE to study accounting and finance. And LSE is a fantastic institution, uh, but as was the case at the time, across probably a lot of uh, the top universities, there were not that many black people. And growing up, uh, so that was the first thing, growing up, investment banking was not something that was prevalent uh, in West Africa. Investment banks didn't exist uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, in terms of learning about investment banking, it was really through what was then the Afro-Caribbean Society at LSE, where, you know, we had different year groups represented and, you know, 
some of my friends who were in the second and third year were starting to do internships, starting to interact with firms across the city. So the Goldman's, Morgan Stanley's, et cetera, and starting to talk about the experiences. So they, you know, they they'd organize sessions and, and tell us what was happening uh, within these within these banks. Uh, and it piqued my interest. Uh, and so I started to attend, you know, inside days, et cetera. And ultimately made the decision to explore an internship, which I did through SEO, which is the Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And I loved my internship at Deutsche Bank. I spent the summer of 2004 there. Every day was fantastic. I enjoyed it. And I I went from, you know, joining the LSE and thinking I was going to become an accountant to thinking, right, investment banking, this is me. I'm done. So I was thrilled to receive an offer at the end of that internship. Uh, and joined them full time in the summer of two thousand and five. And what was that? What was that conversation like when you went back to tell your parents that you're not going to be an accountant or a doctor or an engineer, but you're going to be an investment banker now? How did that conversation go? I think that my parents were ecstatic. I mean, firstly, I've got to say, getting into LSE and graduating from LSE was for them fantastic, right? And so. It was almost a case of I could have left LSE to do anything and they would have been happy. Uh, But obviously, my dad had lived in the UK for a number of years. He'd heard of investment banks, you know, didn't really understand them. But he understood that it was was a prestigious career to pursue. And so getting the offer from Deutsche Bank for them was another moment of pride uh, for them. And I I received full support uh, to pursue that as a career. Uh, I mean, I think my dad may have been slightly disappointed because he he is an accountant by background. He said, well, you could you could have gone and done your ACA anyway. <laughs> if this is what you want to start, you have my full support. Um, so, yeah, they were they were very, very pleased. Look, Nana, you know, looking from the outside in, you know, you were um, voted one of the rising stars of financial services industry in 2021. There's been numerous awards. So outside looking in. People could think it's been plain sailing. You've spoken about having to balance your personal commitments in terms of family. You're also involved in numerous philanthropic um, aspects as well. But talk to me and talk to your audience about some of the challenges that you've experienced over your last 16 years, because you've mentioned that there are not many black investment bankers in the UK focused on European clients. Please share with my listeners and and viewers today what challenges you've um, experienced and how you've overcome them, Nana. So I think um, a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome and and it is is real. And I remember notwithstanding the fantastic uh, 10 weeks that I spent in the summer of 2004 at Deutsche Bank, joining the full-time program the following summer and walking into uh, the reception area of, uh, or the lobby of a, of a hotel where our training program was being held and walking into the room full of graduates who were going to be joining the investment banking program that year and looking across the floor and seeing a sea of predominantly white faces and my heart just sinking and feeling like, okay, what have you done? Have you made the right decision? Are you in the right place? And for me, that was the first taster of what imposter syndrome felt like. And to some extent, I I have seen that, uh, you know, sort of in some way, shape or form across the board. Uh, One of the things that helped me overcome that particular instance was 
you know, looking through the crowd and seeing one face that looked like mine and almost making a beeline to that face uh, and introducing myself and, and making friends with this lady who now has become one of my best friends. And we share, we share stories all the time of our experiences. And so I think one of the things about having those kinds of negative experiences is being able to share them with other people that are going through a similar thing and bouncing ideas off each other. We do that regularly. I call her my accountability partner because she always puts me in check and she always makes sure that I'm assessing situations objectively rather than with the emotion that comes with experiencing these negative things. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing was just understanding that I had to, I had to overcome that. And one of the things that I do for all my meetings, uh, interactions, even internally, is make sure that I'm very prepared. I have a background to the situation that I'm walking into, whether it's a meeting or a conversation. I have the, you know, as much background information as I can get. I have a list of questions that I need to ask. Uh, and I'm as prepared as possible because that, in a way, gives you the confidence to know why you're going into that meeting, why you're in the room. And therefore, when you speak, you speak with a level of, a level of certainty, you know, assertiveness and confidence. And I think the other thing that is, is really important, and I, I noted this luckily in the early part of my career, uh, because when I you know, went through the first year, my modus operandi was to come in, work hard, get the job done. You know, I was the first person in, last person out. And I really, really thought that was the way to do it. And I remember walking out of my year-end review meeting where my boss at the time said to me, you know, Nana, you're good, but you're not that great, you know, which I felt was hugely disappointing given the amount of effort that I had put in. So I sort of had to take a step back and ask, you know, and we talked about it, what is it that I could do better? And it turns out that, you know, some of the things that I was doing through my internship, I stopped doing, you know, networking, positioning myself, finding a sponsor, all of these things were things that I needed to carry on doing. And it's not enough to just sit there and crank through the day job. It simply wasn't enough. So I started to do that and it really turned things around in my second year at Deutsche Bank. And by the end of that year, the conversation in my year end review was, could, have, could not have been diametrically more opposed to that first conversation. So I would say those are some of the challenges that I've faced along the way um, that I've had to navigate through. And, and those are some of the, the tools that I use to get through that. And that's the, and again, context setting is really, really important here because there's some listeners who, who may not have heard the first part of the podcast. Nana came to the UK in 2001 and started working at, at Deutsche Bank within four years. So she only realised she was black when she arrived into the UK. So, so again, there, there, there are sensitivities there where you walk into a room. So I think it's really important to, to, to frame that. And I think it's really important how Nana's spoken about pivoting network. And network is your net worth. And, and the fact that Nana has shown up and engaged and, and shared her experiences with colleagues, what she'd done at the weekend, was, was super, super important. Based on pivoting, I want to pivot this conversation slightly differently now because we, we've spoken about the professional, um, the beginning, the end. We've spoken about your personal situation. I really want to talk about your philanthropy and charity, but I also want to hear about, for you, 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, what that meant to you because 
You co-founded GEMS at Jefferies, which is the Black Employee Network group with um, Corey Spells. Um, talk to me about what 2020 meant to you and what the driver is around GEMS, please, Nana. So let me answer the question kind of the other way around in terms of talking in about the run-up to 2020, because I think that's important. So I talked about coming into the industry and what that felt like. But fast forward to sort of 2017, 2018, you know, I was married, I had my, you know, I, when I got married, I, I gained a stepson and then I had two children. So I'd had my second child um, and I was on my maternity leave and I had a sort of catch up conversation with my sponsor. And during that conversation, we started to talk about the, the, the conversation just sort of veered towards diversity. And I became so animated and so passionate about the lack of representation, uh, having to navigate as a black woman and not seeing enough rep representation through the years. And by the end of that conversation, my sponsor said to me, well, why don't you do something about it? And that something was the starting point of GEMS. And I left that conversation 100% fired up to find other black people within Jeffries. Uh, other people that were underrepresented uh, and develop an agenda. One of the things I was very nervous about starting GEMS was not creating something that was tokenistic and not creating something that was just about networking and drinks, et cetera, but creating something that defined the start of change at the firm. And so the start of GEMS was very much about exploring that and exploring what GEMS needed to stand for. So you fast forward to 25th of May, 2020, which was a day of devastation for me um, because I know that my husband, who was born in Trinidad, came to the UK uh, in the early 90s because his parents were recruited as teachers to come to the UK to work in inner city schools in Hackney. And this was something that happened quite prolifically in the late 80s and 90s here in the UK where um, you know, inner city councils would go out to the Caribbean to recruit teachers. So that's how his family came to the UK. And he tells stories of running away from the police and because he was running, running to catch a bus and being assumed to be doing something different and having to spend a night in, the, in, the, in police cells. Uh, we are raising two boys. Uh, and so for us, George Floyd was real. This could have been my husband. This could have been one of my two sons. It was as real as that. And so emotionally, we were all in a dark place. And we talked about it for weeks. We, had, we sat the kids down and had a conversation about it. Uh, obviously, as a family, we all had to deal with the, the weight of it. But I think more importantly, sort of switching into what that meant for the professional world, uh, I think it was important and a really good move that our CEO recognize that and recognize that it was a moment of change. And what we did as a firm or what he facilitated us doing as a firm was having real conversations about what that meant for black people. So we organized multiple conversations across the firm. I think we ended up speaking to about 2000 of our colleagues about what life as a black person meant. You know, George Floyd, what happened to George Floyd, frankly could have happened to any of us and what it means to live in this skin you know, the things that we have to overcome, uh, whether it's switching codes, whether it's coming to work and, and you know, switching on an, another personality and imposter syndrome and the conversations that we have to have with our children that other people don't have to. 
because of the world that we live in. So having bringing all of those real things to the fore was important. But I think much more importantly, if we fast forward several months later, those conversations sparked a series of very senior level engagements within the firm, which meant that our CEO made a commitment about the changes that he wanted to see within the firm and within broader society as a result of that event. And I think for me, I mark that as one of the, the highlights of my career, being part of that conversation, being part of what started as a chain reaction within our organization to effect change around race and ethnicity. Wow. Wow. Sorry, that takes me back to, to 2020 by, by you walking me through having that conversation as a parent and, and, and talking to your children um, about race and um, that society sometimes isn't fair. Um, I remember talking to, to my kids who are, they would have been 11, 9 and 7. But I'd spoken to them previously about what it's what it's like to be a black child. So, so again, that really does um, take me back, and I appreciate you so beautifully articulating the reasons why um, the work at Jeffries is so important. But looking at the here and now, and and not just from a Jeffries standpoint, what positives do you take that organisations have made in the last eighteen? 24 months, Nana, since that day, which hopefully um, is a game changer for, for, for change. So what do you think organizations have done well? I think just building on what I said in the previous response, the first thing is we are talking about race. And that used to be a taboo topic, certainly uh, in, in previous situations. And people are talking about it, not for the sake of it, but wanting to understand. I think the starting point of any change has to be education. The more people know, the more people understand, the more we build empathy and the more we, we get rid of the sources of prejudice, right? So I think the starting the conversation and opening up at very senior levels, people's eyes to what these things actually mean for everyday people is critical. And I think we're seeing a lot of that when you go onto social media, there's a lot of real conversations happening now in a way that, frankly, when I started my career didn't exist. So I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing that we're starting to see is, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on changes that need to be made uh, from a legal standpoint. Um, so uh, the Parker Review, I think there's a new report coming out this year around how ethnicity needs to be addressed in boardrooms. Uh, I was reading an article in the FT the other day um, where Mr. Parker has made huge efforts towards encouraging FTSE 100 firms to ensure that their boards are diverse and that they have ethnic representation on them. And that call alone has changed the tone of how board trustees recruitment has evolved over the last couple of years. So obviously there's more to be done in that space, but I think we, we're starting to see changes around that as well. And what that will then mean for things like full publication of ethnic pay gap, for, for instance, will be a, an, an important part of the change going forward. And I think more importantly now, you'll, and, and I hope this is something that translates into the curriculum for our children, because if we think about the world that our children are growing up in, it's much more open. Information is much more readily available. 
But my hope is that, you know, curriculums become much more open and history becomes much more representative of what actually happened, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago, so that people fully understand the backdrop of the world that we live in today. And we all make an effort to do better. Thank you. Um, I'm mindful of time. So we've, we've got a couple of minutes left. I, I can speak to you for hours. And I'm sure that the, the viewers and listeners would, would uh, agree to that. You mentioned your accountability partner. And I look at the start of my career. I, I didn't have someone that looked like me from an accountability partner perspective. And I'm sure that was really important. The fact that you and her are, are super good friends now is, is really important. But talk to me about the importance of a mentor in, in 60 seconds coming into an organization. And, and we're not necessarily talking about trying to um, have a mentor who's the CEO of the bank, but you as an analyst into Deutsche Bank, I'm sure there are behaviors that you picked up good and bad, unless you picked up, from VPs or the class ahead. So talk to me about the importance of, of mentors and role models uh, moving forward, Nana. Our lump three groups of people together, your sponsor, your mentor, your role model. I think these are three categories of people that you have to have represented in your life as early as possible. You need your mentor as a checkpoint. And for me, I call her my accountability partner, but she was a peer mentor, really. Somebody who was experiencing what I was experiencing and, and therefore able to, to tell me when I was not thinking things through in the right way. I think it's also important to have a role model, somebody you look up to, somebody that you see, you, you look up and you think, that's where I want to be in five years' time, 10 years' time, whatever it is, and forge a relationship with them and ask them how they've, you know, journeyed to where they are and, and pick up tips from them in terms of the things that they've done to get to where they are. And I think another important person to have in your life is a sponsor, somebody within your organization who has the clout, who has the decision-making power, uh, to support you through as you rise through the ranks. Um, and without a sponsor, one of the key things I've learned about getting to MD without a sponsor, it's, it, it's not going to happen, right? So you need this senior person seeing you in action and banging the table in these roundtable meetings to ensure that your hard work is recognized in the right way. And I think you need a trifecta of this to progress your career in the right way. Now, at the top of the hour before we started, you mentioned that you've got an important client deal to call um, in a couple of minutes. So this is this is the last question, and I'll let you close this out. If you had the opportunity, what two things or three things would you recommend to yourself when you started in the industry 16 years ago? So what two pieces of advice would you give the 23-year-old Nana in terms of her journey and experiences. Build your brand early and invest in it. That is your foundation. You need it starting from day one. The second thing is do it, get on with it, do it afraid. You have nothing to lose. And on that note, to my listeners, to my viewers, I would like to say a wholehearted thank you to Nana Raphael, mother, wife, investment banker, friend, role model, philanthropist. Thank you so much for joining us on The Progression Puzzle. We will absolutely make sure we have you back in the near future. 
Thank you so much, Nana. Thank you, Michael. It's been a privilege. Thank you for listening to The Progression Puzzle, brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. If you enjoyed this episode, which I truly hope you have, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. For more information on how Barrington Hibberts can help you to maximize the power of difference, head over to www.barringtonhibbert.com. Join us next time for more pieces of the progression puzzle.